sometimes life can get a little out of hand, can it? You know, you make one decision, it could be a seemingly small decision, but that decision leads to all these other unintended consequences. And if you knew that that small decision that you were making was going to lead to all of these other consequences, you might not have made that decision in the first place. You know what I mean? Take, take for instance, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Okay, it was 1871, and Mrs. O'Leary, she wanted to milk her cow. And so she goes outside in the afternoon over to the barn, and she starts to milk the cow. The cow gets a little agitated, kicks over the lantern, which in turn sets all the hay on fire, which in turn catches the barn on fire, which in turn catches basically all of Chicago on fire. And so you have the great Chicago fire of 1871, all because Mrs. O'Leary wanted to milk her cow. 100,000 people homeless, 300 people dead. Sometimes life gets a little out of hand, doesn't it? So, you know how it is. You can say something, and yeah, it probably wasn't the best choice of words, and then someone you didn't want to overhears what is said, and then there's hurt feelings, more words are said, there's a loss or at least damage to the relationship. Life just gets out of hand. What do you do in those moments? When life is just a little out of your control, when life gets out of hand. You know, that's interesting because this morning we're going to visit a courtroom. And we're going to travel with with Paul. And for him, life gets a little bit out of hand. It's out of his control. The pressure gets turned up. So turn with me this morning and we'll begin in Acts 23 verses 1 through 5. Acts 23 verses 1 through 5 as we continue our series on the unstoppable church. And so just to remember, refresh your memories if you were with us last week, Paul, he's in custody at this point. Okay, the Roman official, the commander, he has him. He's, Paul has just addressed the crowd of Jews, and he's sharing his testimony, and the Jews, they're listening as he's talking about his life before Christ and how he came to Christ. You know, they're intently listening, and then as soon as he says that God sent him to the Gentiles, well, then they've had enough. They don't want to listen to any more of that, so they're, they're done. And at that moment, they just lose it. And so Paul, Paul, he's taken by the Roman commander over and given over into the custody of the chief priest so that he can appear before the Sanhedrin. And so to really see this story this morning, we're just going to kind of peek our heads in and out of a couple different courtrooms. We'll take a few recesses and discuss what we see. But I want you to notice that at this point in Paul's life, his life seems out of control, just out of his hands. And as things get heated, I want you to see what happens. So let's go ahead and read it. Acts 23, verses 1 through 5. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. 
Paul, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, a judicial body that he knew well. A group of men, 70 men. They had two factions in the Sanhedrin. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they made judgments based on their interpretation of the Mosaic Law. And then they handed out the, the punishments accordingly. And the heat is getting turned up at this point. And to help just understand Paul's state of mind, I just want to remind you where he's been this last week. And what all he's gone through. Okay, He, he, he had been beaten by a mob. He had been bound in chains. His death had been demanded by these zealous Jews. He had almost been scourged. The Roman commander in charge of Paul, he handed him back over to the chief priest. Now, after all this, it had probably been a hard week. Probably little food, less sleep, not a whole lot of physical care. And so he's standing before the Sanhedrin, this judicial body who's going to decide his fate, the highest Jewish courtroom, and he's weary and bruised. Okay, th- this is the situation. And he starts off in his customary, polite, respectful tone. But the high priest did not like what he was hearing out of Paul. And so he ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth. And then notice, Paul lost it. Okay, the stress gets to him. He had had enough. And he lashes out at the high priest. I mean, he yells at him, you whitewashed wall. I mean, every other time when people are getting hot-headed, Paul is always cool. He's always able to keep his head. But not this time. This time, Paul loses it. And it seems as if he recognizes his mistake almost immediately. Now, some have tried to say, well, no, Paul didn't really do anything wrong here. I mean, he's just calling them out, calling the high priest out for who he is. But, and remember, Jesus even yelled at the Pharisees. But you have to when Jesus yelled at the Pharisees, Jesus was not defending his own honor He was defending God. Here's Paul. Paul's just upset from what's happening to him. He's not defending God at this moment. He's upset with what's happening to him. He had been through so much. I mean, we can understand it because we'd probably all do the same thing. They treat us like this, and finally, you reach that boiling point, and it just explodes. But it seems as if Paul recognizes his mistake almost immediately. He says he didn't realize that he was speaking to the high priest. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, scholars have tried to debate and, and, and wonder, well, how did Paul not know he was speaking to the high priest? I mean, did Paul, was his eyesight so bad that he just couldn't recognize the high priest? Was the high priest not wearing his royal robes that he usually would wear? Was, was this a new high priest that Paul hadn't met before? How did Paul not know it was the high priest? Was he just being sarcastic or something, trying to make an excuse? Whatever the reason, it, We don't really know, but make no mistake, the damage had been done. And Paul knew it. He knew. He said, I violated the law because this is what the law was. I wasn't supposed to speak ill of the high priest. So he's showing deference to the law. In a heated moment, Paul said the wrong thing to the wrong person. He had then, therefore, blown his opportunity to share the gospel to this Jewish judicial body, the Sanhedrin. And things get ugly. Things get out of hand. The heat gets turned up real quick. Paul is at this point now kind of almost afraid for his life. And so he's got to think quick on his feet and protected by God, he kind of turns the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other. He knows their tendencies. He knows their arguments and their disagreements. So he brings up the resurrection of the dead. And 
No, the Sadducees, they don't believe in that. The Pharisees do. And this huge uproar ensues. The Roman commander has to come in and kind of whisk Paul away and take him back to his jail cell. And Paul ends up back in prison just in that jail cell waiting. And I imagine, you know, I kind of wonder even, if Paul in that jail cell, if he just kind of leaned up against that cold wall, you know, and just brought his knees up close to his face and just kind of laid, rested his arms on his knees and just buried his head there. Because I imagine he was exhausted. But I don't think he could sleep because the guilt that is whipping him stings just as much as any beating. Because he knows he blew his opportunity. Have you ever been there? Have you ever blown it so bad that you think, God, what are you going to do with this? I've just made a mess of things. You can't believe what you've done. Maybe you've done something, you said, I, I always told myself I would never do that. I can't believe this happened. I, I thought I would never say those things. And yet in a fit of anger, I, I, I just exploded and lashed out. See, I think Paul could relate. And as Paul was in prison, the Jews plotted to kill Paul. Right? They're upset. They, they plan to kill Paul. Paul's nephew, he, heard, he hears of the plot. He comes in. He tells Paul. Paul tells him, hey, you got to let the Roman commander know. So he tells the Roman commander. The Roman commander arranges, writes a letter and arranges for Paul to have a Roman Roman trial. Right after losing his temper, and I imagine just feeling at his lowest, the winds of God's grace just comes whistling by. That's how it is, you know, when when you're faithful. The grace of God can overshadow the guilt within us. The grace of God can overshadow the guilt within us because God's grace, it brings life, it restores life, it renews life. It reminds us that God's not through with us yet. That just because we've made poor choices in the past doesn't mean that God just abandons us or casts us out, but that he still wants us and he still invites us. Yeah, you respond in anger sometimes, you do things you wish you could take back, but God's not done I want to look back in the courtroom here, this time a Roman courtroom, Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you any further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. The Jewish leaders, they hired Tertullus. Tertullus is this golden-tongued order, okay? He's a, he's a great speaker. And they hire him to be their prosecuting attorney who is going to make the case against Paul. 
And I want to stop again just for a second and just remind ourselves why the Jews are doing this to Paul. Why are they trying to make this case against him? Why are they leveling complaints? Why the assassination plot? Why are they hiring the smooth-talking prosecutor? It's because Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it challenges everything they believe. See, Paul's gospel said, you missed the Messiah. Paul's not saying, hey, your love for the law is, is the problem. In fact, Jesus and even Paul, they make the case, no, the law is good. That's not the problem. Your problem is you've tried to add to the law, and you've twisted the law, and you don't really obey the law yourselves. You just turn it into some kind of ritualistic practice. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law has been fulfilled, and you've missed it. More than that, you've crucified the Messiah. See, Paul's gospel said that if you will not repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. That your tradition, your rituals, your ceremonies, they can't save you at all. In fact, all of that just points to the fact that you missed Jesus. You missed him. And so from the Jewish perspective, this calls into question everything that they believe. Because everything they believe is founded on this. And now they're saying, no, 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 this, this needs to change the way you teach your kids. This needs to change the way you live your life. Paul's gospel turns their world upside down because it says you don't have to fulfill the law anymore because you can't. Someone has come who did fulfill the law on your behalf. And so you must trust in Jesus. It makes their religion meaningless. Even worse, it makes their religion a religion that leads to eternal death because it does not have Christ at the center. It misses the Messiah. Do you see the problem that Paul is facing? See, Paul is facing the problem that he's preaching this gospel and the Jews are afraid of what Paul's message means to them. They feel like they're losing their power, they're losing their control. What will this do? How's this going to impact their customs, their traditions, their rituals, their religion, all this? So as they've done many times before, they say, we've got to shut Paul up. We've got to take care of this. Paul's becoming a problem. And they hatch a plan. They try to get him killed. That doesn't work. And they're so afraid, they begin a riot. They want to kill him. He goes behind bars. They hire this gifted attorney to come in and make the case against Paul, hoping to lock him up really for good. And boy, you look at it, and man, Tertullus, he was a smooth operator, wasn't he? I mean, you look at the way that he, he could lay it on, couldn't he? I mean, he stands before Felix, and, and you hear this guy make the case, and you hear the way he just flatters him and just kind of butters him up? I mean, we, we enjoy so much peace under your rule, Governor Felix. I mean, because of the foresight and wisdom with which you've governed our nation, I mean, you, you've, you've really led us into a place of peace and prosperity. Oh, most excellent Felix. I mean, he's just buttering him up, and really it's all a bunch of lies. You go you back and you study history at this time, and as a matter of fact, there, there was much more turmoil and much less peace in Judea under the reign of Felix than any previous governor. Under Felix, I mean, people were growing so frustrated that they were uprisings just by the day because of the corruption in government. The truth is, <clears throat> Ananias Felix, he was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a political leader. 
but he didn't become a political leader because he earned it or because he deserved it. His brother was a close childhood friend of the emperor Nero and persuaded Nero to make Felix governor. And so once Felix becomes governor, history shows that Felix is just as evil as Nero. He's an evil leader. The Roman historian Tacitus, he describes Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. And so in this courtroom, in front of this crooked governor, this crooked judge, Paul stood and watched as this prosecuting attorney just flatters this evil man and levels all of these charges against him. And these are the charges that Tertullus made, okay? First, that Paul is a troublemaker. That he's a pest, he's a plague. I mean, this is calculated language designed to get Felix all riled up. He's arguing that Paul is a threat to the peace of Rome. And so this is going to get any Roman upset, especially a Roman leader, because if things stop being peaceful, he could lose his, uh, his governorship. The second charge leveled against him is that Paul is a ringleader. Not only is he stirring people up, he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect. Did you hear that language, this Nazarene sect? This is divisive language. And so the Nazarenes in those days were thought of as like this no good, backwards, illiterate bunch of people. And notice how clever Tertullus is because the argument he is making, he is trying to connect Paul to this group of people. Because now, not only is Paul a threat, the whole Nazarene sect, Christians, they are now also a threat. So if this goes bad for Paul, every Christian in the land is in trouble. Because this this is part of the argument that he's making. The third charge is that Paul is a blasphemer who has desecrated the temple. And Tertullus, he's reminding Felix that the Jewish Sanhedrin should be allowed to try the case. He's saying, hey, Felix, we just want to take this off your hands. Because, you know, whenever there's an issue in the temple, it's the Jews who get to try it. And we don't want to trouble you with this, Felix. We'll be happy to take the case. We'll be happy to prosecute Paul. You don't need to worry about it. So this is the argument Tortullus is making to Felix. I want to consider what we've heard for a second. We've witnessed the buttering up of this evil, crooked governor. Three charges leveled against Paul. They're all untrue. The Jews from Asia, Asia Minor, um, it'll later say, they are the ones who started the trouble. We saw that back in in Acts 21, and now we see it again in the the later part of 24 here. They're the ones who started the trouble. They're, They're following Paul around, and they're really the ringleaders. They're the ones who are starting all the riots and getting people up, up just in all this frenzy, and then they're blaming it all on Paul. And Paul didn't desecrate the temple. You see, people, they're, they're afraid when they're confronted with the real representative of God because it affects everything about them. It affects the way they live. It affects the way they think. It affects the way they raise their kids. And so these people, they're looking at everything's being affected And so they just start perverting the truth, loving whatever charge they can so that they can get back to life as normal because he, Paul, is upsetting everything. 
Yeah, there was troublemaking, but Paul wasn't the troublemaker. Yeah, there was a ringleader, but Paul wasn't the ringleader. Yeah, the temple was desecrated, but not by Paul, but by the sinful unbelief of the Jews who treated the law as if it was some kind of ritual ceremony that's going to make them holy. See, Felix is called noble and excellent when he is wicked, and Paul is called wicked when he is noble. Did you see that? That wouldn't happen today, would it? I mean, that wouldn't happen in today's world. Would the world ever call darkness light? Would the world ever call evil acceptable, call sin good? Would the world ever attach labels to righteous men and women? See, what do you do when the pressure mounts? What do you do when the heat starts to get turned up? You better be ready. You better be ready. Because it's happening. Right? Maybe not to the degree that Paul faces, but are you going to shrink back and just try to be safe and try to go unnoticed? Or will you put your faith on the line day after day in the public square the way Paul does as he just continues to share Jesus? So we've got to cause people to consider Christ. We have to cause people to consider Jesus. And just like Paul's faith, your faith too, it's going to make people afraid. It's going to make people defensive. It's going to call into question what they believe and how they live. And if you think that it's just the Jews who are afraid, let's look again, okay, verses 10 through 27. When the governor, Felix, motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about the righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Paul is speaking in a courtroom again, this time a Roman courtroom. And this time he's cool and calm. He does not lose his, his temper or anything like that. He's respectful to this pagan, godless judge, and he causes this pagan, godless judge to think. And I want to consider with you just Felix's actions for a little bit. Felix adjourns the case claiming that, hey, I'm just going to wait for Lysias to kind of come and, and wait for that report that I get from him. Well, Lysias is the commander, okay, who's already taken Paul into custody. Lysias is the one who sent the letter to the Romans to get Paul a Roman trial. The governor, Felix, already had the report from Lysias. Okay, you go back and look. He already knows that Paul is innocent. He's already received the report. He's not really waiting for the report. He's just trying to put things off. He doesn't want to offend the powerful Jewish lobby, you know, under his reign. And so... He's just making up an excuse. But at the same time, Felix, he didn't want to kill Paul. And so he's trying to, okay, I'm going to try to keep him alive, but at the same time, I don't want to offend the Jews over here. You see, there is something about Paul that keeps Felix coming back. Did you notice that? Felix kept coming back. He'd, he'd hear enough, and then, ah, i got to go away. This is enough for now. But then he'd keep coming back, and he'd come with his wife, Drusilla. Now, Drusilla, I mean, if she were alive today, she would be like front page fodder for all the tabloids. She'd be in all the, all the TV shows and everything. Luke tells us that she was a Jewish, a Jewess. It means she sold her royal birthright. Okay, she had walked away from the Jewish faith a long time ago. Historians tell us that she was this raving beauty, and by the age of 14, she was the wife of a Syrian prince. She was also very superstitious and kind of mystical. And so Felix, he kind of uses that to his advantage, and he comes to uh, Drusilla, and he, he says, hey, look at the stars in the sky, and, 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 and look at the spirits and everything that they're saying. They're saying that, you know, you should be with me. And she believes it, and she goes for that language, is all right, you know, I'm, I'm with you now. And so she leaves her Syrian prince, and she marries at the age of 16 Antonius Felix, an even more powerful and even more wealthy man. And as Felix and Drusilla, as they listened to Paul speak about his faith and the gospel, you see what happens? Felix becomes alarmed. He becomes afraid. He becomes frightened. It's not just the Jews who are afraid. Now you've got a Roman, powerful, wealthy governor who is afraid. Because this is what the gospel does. It, it, it calls into question everything you Believe. I mean, here's Felix. He seems like he's got all this power, all this control, a beautiful wife right by his side. He's got everything, right? And he can't bear to listen anymore. He can only take it in pieces. Oh, he's, an, he's heard about the way. He's heard about Christianity, but he can only take it in pieces. He sends Paul away, and he brings him back, and he sends him away, and then he brings him back. But he keeps on checking in, and he's secretly hoping that Paul is going to turn out just like everyone else who's been in this courtroom. 
that Paul is going to, at some point, that he's going to crack and he's going to offer him some kind of bribe that, that it's going to prove that, okay, I don't have to worry about this Christianity thing because it doesn't really change lives. That Paul's message and his life, they don't match up. That he's just got all these words, but hey, they don't really do anything. He's hoping that the gospel is not real because this will change everything for him. See, the gospel cuts right to the heart of who we are. It impacts everything in our lives. There's not any aspect of our lives that the gospel does not touch. There is this myth that we have the, the secular and the sacred. That, that is a myth from hell. God impacts everything. There is no secular part of our life. The gospel cuts right to the heart of this. And perhaps for the first time in Felix's life, he has to wrestle with the fact that he is a guilty sinner before a righteous God. And he had to wrestle with the fact that a judgment day was coming. But Felix's response to that was to delay. You see it? He just kept pushing things off. Just delaying, just hoping that perhaps this wouldn't be true. That perhaps Paul would violate everything he's saying that he wouldn't have to believe. He's just delaying. Maybe you're here this morning. You come to church all the time. But you really delayed a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've done some good things and whatever. But for whatever reason, if you were really to be honest, I don't know that I have a relationship with Jesus. Don't be like Felix. Don't. Delay any longer. See, delays blind your mind with lesser issues. Delays will blind your mind with lesser issues. One of the issues for the Jews, and I think for Felix, is the power that they have. They're trying to preserve, preserve that power. Felix, he wants to keep the Jewish lobby happy. He doesn't know what will happen if he becomes a Christian as this Roman governor. What will that mean for his governorship? He's trying to preserve power. The Jews are doing the same thing. It's going to upend everything. It's going to upend their whole system. And they've got to preserve their power. And so they make decisions based on lesser issues. We can do the same thing. We, we can think that we're making decisions, trying to increase our power, our authority, our control, our prestige. And we can put off a relationship with Jesus. Hey, we've got plenty of time for that. I'll just wait a while. Because I don't know that I want all the responsibility that comes with the relationship with Christ. You know, Jesus was the most powerful man ever to live. And you look through the course of human history, the most prestigious man ever to live. Well, you have the most powerful and the most prestigious man ever to live, and that's what people are all after, right? Power and prestige. I want to be known and recognized and people to think well of me, and I want power and control that... I'm in charge. The most powerful, the most prestigious man ever to live, what did he do with that power and prestige? He gave it away. Hey, you be my witnesses. Let, let me send you out. You, you can take the name of God. You can be a son, a daughter of God. He gives away the power and the prestige. I did not come to be served, but to serve. You want power and prestige. You want to be like Jesus, you got to give it away. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about the glory of Christ 
and making him known. Maybe you're a Christian, and you're delaying things too. You know, you say, I've got the relationship, but you just feel like, man, I know that I should be reading my Bible. I've never really done that before. I've always found it difficult or hard, so I've never really done that. Maybe you've got gifts, talents, abilities that feel like, man, I ought to be be using those to benefit the family of God. But for whatever reason, you really haven't done that. Maybe it's not that. Maybe, maybe you're like, man, I, I know that I need to be engaged in the community. I, I need to get out and just serve my community and just share Jesus and impact people. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe you're scared, maybe it's fear, maybe you don't know how people are going to react or whatever. But just getting out there and, and really being a light for Christ has been difficult for you. Take that next step. Don't delay. Don't delay. Delays will cloud your mind with lesser issues. Maybe it's not those things. Maybe you've wronged someone. You've hurt someone in the past. Maybe you know there's this damaged relationship that that is there. Don't delay. Go to the person. Apologize. Tell them. You don't need to go to anybody else. Just go to them. Make things right. As workers, as as you're on your job, as students, don't delay. Don't delay. Don't be a procrastinator. Everything you do at work and at school, you do with excellence. You don't be a complainer about everyone else who's complaining about the job and this and that and everything that's wrong with it. Of course, there's going to be things wrong with it. We're in a sinful world. There's always going to be things wrong. If you're looking for something to complain about, you'll always find something. No, you be the hardest worker in your company. You be the best student at your school. Why? Because anything that God's called us to do, he's called us to do to the glory and honor of God, so we do things with excellence with joy, with excitement, because we see that God has given us this stewardship to impact people in the way that we work, in the way that we live, in the way that we play, in the way that we study. Whatever God has called us to do, we do well. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Don't just put things off. Don't sit at your desk just twiddling things away. You'd be the best worker there for the glory of God. Maybe your life feels a little bit out of control. Maybe it's a little out of hand. Maybe there's a fire going, and for you, it seems like it's raging, and you don't know what to do. It's like the great Chicago fire of 1871, and you're not sure what you're going to do with this mess. Take a moment, pray, really seek God, and ask him, hey, what's the next thing for me to do? And often the next thing to do is the hardest thing to do. For Paul, you know, Paul's a man of action. I don't, I don't imagine that he sits still very well. But the next thing that God would call Paul to do is to just be this faithful witness to Felix for two years, to wait for three years before he would be heard in a courtroom again. So you don't want to miss next week. My voice will be much better. And uh, we'll be studying as Paul makes his defense before King Agrippa next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and we can learn from Paul's example your protection over us and how even when we've blown it, your grace comes charging in, reminding us that you still want to use us 
that you're not through with us yet, that your, your grace can overshadow even the guilt in our lives. And so we thank you so much for that. God, help us to live well this week, to cause people to consider you by the way that we live, the, the, our work ethic, the way that uh, we do our jobs, we go about our lives, and the words that we speak, that we will not be bashful or hold back in sharing Jesus with people. So God, give us a great week this week. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.